Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Ben, why are we bringing out our dead? Because we've been bad gardeners and we were lulled into the full sense of security we tell everybody not to fall into, which is to think, oh, it's lovely and mild, so I'm not going to do anything about my really tender plants. And we went away for the weekend to Bath and all of our tender plants are dead. They're dead. Dead, dead, yeah. dead. We lost a hedicium. The ginger lily, which yeah. was actually given to us. I feel really bad about that. I think and that particular customer, sorry, Jill, if you are listening. I don't think she listens, but <laughs> we killed it. I'm sorry. Neglect. Yeah. Um, Aeonium. Aeonium, which was a rescued plant. So now I feel even doubly mean that we brought it back from the brink of death. Got it out of a skip. Oh. Carried it along for two years and then. It got yeah. really, really cold. And I repotted it this year as well. Well, we can all blame Arwen. She was mean. She was a mean, mean storm. Yeah, blame Arwen. Blame Arwen. Not our fault. Yeah, so do tell us if anybody else has been caught up by the same thing as we have. Yeah, get in touch. We want all of your guilty confessions. (laughs) All your disaster stories. Please. (laughs) We're here to make you feel better as well. And if you're new here, welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And what have we got coming up today to salve our souls after our weekend of disaster? Well, we've got a bit of news and we are bringing to you part one of our interview with Dr. Ian Bedford, the fantastic entomologist come public speaker. Yes, indeed. We also have a botanical mystery coming up. We haven't done one of those for a while, but we're bringing them back. And then we've got our native plant of the week, which this time round is the crabapple. Yeah, beautiful plant. So moving first on to our sightings, though, as usual, what have we seen? Mostly birds, which is, that's not a bad thing. I love birds. No, it's the birdie time of year, especially in our garden, Yeah, isn't it? This is when lots of stuff comes in. So the dunnock has come back, which only comes in the winter, as well as the starlings. Yeah, when starlings arrive in our garden, we know it's winter. Because yeah. like, I don't know where they go in the summer and spring, but they're definitely not here. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. But I also saw a gold crest in a garden, and it was fairly urban, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really lovely. We tried last, no, yeah, it was this year, wasn't it? In, in, in sort spring, of early spring, uh, yeah, to try, yeah. and, two of us with fancy cameras and long lenses spent about an hour trying to get a photo of one gold crest and failed miserably didn't we they are so fast (laughs) we just got lots of orange streaks (laughs) (laughs) yeah beautiful though really beautiful and they are tiny in fact we saw one a couple of weeks ago i don't think we said it on our sightings in another customer's mirabelle tree oh yeah no there's a pair of them yeah 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 right uh, overhead yeah and i was i was looking up at them and their beaks are so uh s- small and fine yeah they, yeah they, I, i'm not certain what gold crest eat what seeds they go for or actually i don't know if even if they eat seeds that is something we need to look up i'm not sure but you often see we them in conifers you do often see them in conifers yeah well they must be going for quite a small food because their their beaks are so fine yeah i don't know yeah we'll have to look that one up we've also seen some plants that are looking good though haven't we Quite a few, yes. One of them is the crab apple, which is our native plant of the week, because at this time of year, the, the glistening fruits are often just there on the stems with no leaves and they look fantastic. But I'll talk about more about that later on. Yeah, we saw a really lovely smoke bush 
Yeah, the Catinus. Yeah, the Latin is Cogigyra, Cogigyra. Cogigyra, I think it is. Yeah, something like that. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, We saw that at the Bath Botanical Gardens. Yeah, we took a little walk there when we were on our holiday. Yeah, it's just part of a public park. And if you are in Bath, I I recommend going up because they've got loads of interesting trees, haven't they? Yeah, certainly lots that we didn't recognise. And we were there with our good friend Gareth Richards, who's also been interviewed on this programme. And he is always fantastic to ask lots of questions about what yeah. is what <laughs> yeah he always points out all the stuff we don't know to our other friend michelle who was there as well so hello michelle um we also when we were there we saw some of these and we've got them in our gardens as well in the gardens we look after um dogwoods are yeah. finally looking really really good because a lot of the the colored stemmed dogwoods including the native one that's the cornus sanguinea it sort of has that blood red stem but most of the year it's hidden behind the leaves but yep. of course all the leaves drop at this time of year and they've all just dropped in the last week and yeah all of these dogwoods are looking beautiful and there's loads there's loads of different species and varieties you get bright yellow and orange ones and green lime green ones as well yeah, they're just really, really good for a winter garden. Fantastic plants. And we actually talked about those in an episode, I think way back in January or February this year. So if you want to know more about what it can do for wildlife, then check out that episode, guys. Yeah, and finally, you got an ID on that little red beetle we yeah, saw. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense because it did seem to jump quite fast, but it is a type of flea beetle, which for an allotment here isn't necessarily the best thing. No, <laughs> we don't like to talk about pests. Pest, yeah. yeah, so when we come to grow any like brassicas in the future we might need to watch out for that but we'll see yeah it was an interesting spot though and a really beautiful beetle and thank you to the lovely person on facebook that helped me identify it from my very very shaky tiny photo yeah that was a good spot yeah so we saw that up at the allotment and speaking of the allotment we actually took a little trip up there earlier today (sighs) right winter has definitely arrived on the allotment today it's about three degrees I don't know if you heard that Ellie just shouted wuss at me you can see your breath it's that cold there's grey skies the rain's coming down and we are here to do a very important job despite the weather which is to start cutting the hedges on the site back hard now cutting hedges back hard is a job that you want to save until winter time because sort of between March and September there might be birds nesting in there so you certainly don't want to be cutting it back then and although you can cut them from September onwards We usually have too much work to do at that time of year, uh, other work elsewhere in the garden, so we wait until until it's really cold to do the job. Now there's one rule on our allotment site, which is the hedges are supposed to be no higher than five feet tall. And it seems like everybody else on the site has completely ignored this, (laughs) so we're going to ignore it too to an extent. The hedge at the front of the site is actually quite high and is blocking some of the light in the evening so we're going to cut that back down to five feet but the rest of the site we're going to do on a rotation over three years and that means there's always some growth that's either two or three years old and it's that growth that that sort of twiggy growth all the ivy that's in there that is protecting all the invertebrates that are hiding away there over the winter and also it ensures we've always got some blossom and fruits for the birds and the bees early in the year as well right well there's only one way to warm up on a day like today apart from going inside of course and that's to do some graft so i'm going to get the pruning saw get the loppers and set to work on some of these hedges and while we're talking about our allotment 
we'll just very briefly say that we forgot to mention that we were spotted. This is a while ago now, so I'm sorry, Helene or Helena. We're not sure how to pronounce your name because Ben is rubbish. Yeah, you did tell me, and I'm sorry, but I'm terrible. excellent with faces. He hardly knows my name. We live together, but no, it was really, it was good. You spelt your own name wrong in an email to yeah, a let's, customer. Let's last gloss week. over that. It was a typo. It was a typo. But we yeah. call we call Ellie Eli from now on. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> but no, Helene or Helena spotted you at our allotment, and in fact, she took on a plot at about the same time as us. Yeah, on so, the same site. Same site, and yeah. So all we can say is the race is on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's in the same sort of state as ours as well. Lots and lots of clearing of stuff. Yeah, definitely loads of rubbish to dig up. Oh, the plastic. Ah. But we're not, we're, yeah. no, let's no, not no, talk no. about that no, anymore. No, no, no. Also, hello to Leonie Watson, who got in touch uh, via Leonie. Facebook. Thank you. Leonie. Leonie. She Is even it? told us how to pronounce oh, it. Oh, did she? Yes. Oh, you read the message. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, she um, is thinking of becoming a professional wildlife gardener as well, which is great. It's really nice to hear from all of you taking up gardening as a job. Um, so thank you for your message. And you asked a question about the news that we covered a couple of weeks ago. Well, we're actually giving an update on that in a couple of minutes in our new section this time around. And while we're on the shout outs and thank yous, we are we have not done this for a while, actually, have we, Ben? We need to say a thank you to all of you very generous donors to our crowdfunder, Get the Wildlife Garden Podcast Some Gear. And this is all going towards the equipment that is hopefully making this podcast sound good in your ears. So roll the music, Ben. Thank you to Matthew Williams, Stuart Johnson, Michelle Cooper, hello Coop, Trish Evans, Elizabeth Stewart, Gail Pryor, Carrie-Anne Whitbread, Amanda Rigby, Ian Tennant, Maxine Palmer, George Matthew, April Sotomayor, and one other private donor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you very much everybody, and thank you to all those people on that list who I used to work with as well. (laughs) Yeah, and if any of you listening haven't donated and you want to give us a little Christmas present, then please consider donating to the podcast. And to see what we've spent the donations on so far, check out the latest update on our GoFundMe page. Yes, we also put that on Facebook as well, so you can actually see the equipment that we've bought. And if you want to give a gift to a friend this Christmas, why not give them the gift of good wildlife gardening advice by recommending (laughs) our podcast onto them? Yes, please do. (laughs) Cheesy. (laughs) No, we really appreciate it. And it's word of mouth that is the the best way of getting us out there, really, so far. Yeah, because we do no advertising or social media. Media ring, we are really. so bad on social media. We say this all the time, but really, I don't think we're getting better anytime soon. No, no. so it's down to you. Yeah, thanks everyone. <laughs> we place our podcast in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> right, on to the news. And our first news item is an update on a story we covered a few months ago. And thank you very much to Neil over at the UK Wildlife Podcast for pointing this one out. We were really quite depressed. This is how long ago now? A couple of months. A couple of months ago. To hear about the potential implications of a technical review of Schedules 5 and 8 of the Wildlife and Countryside Act. And this was taking place as part of the Joint Nature Conservation Committee's 7th Quinquennial Review. Quinquennial. That's a fantastic word. Very nice. Once every five years. Sad news. Brilliant word. (laughs) 
We reported before that the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust were raising the alarm that a huge swathe of species that are currently protected were at risk of being taken off the protected list because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that they should be considered critically endangered under the criteria for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Red List. That meant taking away all legal protections for things like common frogs and toads, smooth and palmate newts, slow worms, common lizards, adders and many other species besides. But thanks to public pressure and the joint work of a range of nature charities, many of the recommendations from the review have been challenged woohoo, and a new public consultation has been launched, giving the chance for the public to have their say. And the consultation opened on, I think, the 8th of November and it, I think, will run until Sunday the 30th of January next yeah. year. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So we're lucky on this podcast to have lots of ecologists from all different specialisms listening. Hello, everyone. So we thought we'd give you a heads up on how to provide evidence to this consultation. And there will be a link in the show notes that takes you to a page on which you can pick the particular specialism you'd like to give feedback for. And there are options like spiders, fish, crustaceans, algae, fungi, vascular plants, true bugs, and basically the whole gamut. So once you click on an option, it takes you to a questionnaire to give feedback and you can then provide evidence of why species should be protected. So if you're a naturalist or someone who takes records, an ecologist, botanist, whatever, if you have particular knowledge of anything to do with the natural world and you're able to articulate why certain species should be protected or you have records of species decline, then do go and take part in this consultation and submit whatever evidence you have. Yeah, that's right, because the organisations, you know, people like the RSPB and ARC, that's the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust, all of these organisations have been providing what evidence that they have. But of course, there's loads of people out there taking records all the time. Mm. And the problem that was coming up before was was that these organisations were were just worried that they just didn't have the data to hand to actually prove that these species are declining even though all the people in the field know they are know that they are yeah, yeah. it's ridiculous um so they require that data so you know you you if you're sitting on some data about your patch you know do do send it in this is like the opposite of the precautionary principle yeah, well, they're trying to get back to that. They actually ARC yeah. actually say that in their latest press release. I think they're trying to get back to the precautionary principle, Brilliant. That's yeah, good protecting to know. things before we know they're extinct. <laughs> yeah, and the more people that respond and challenge the recommendations, then the less likely it is that any species will be left out as well. Do get involved, guys. So, moving on to my bit of news, just a quick one for anybody again with an interest in botany. The Edinburgh Journal of Botany has just announced that their entire back catalogue and all future editions will be open access, which is brilliant. There go all the long winter evenings. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. this house, anyway. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Now, if this doesn't seem relevant to wildlife gardening, like I say, we just wanted to point out that because the information that we get for this podcast is from journals, something we come up against quite a lot is that a lot of these journal articles are behind a paywall and they cost about 30 quid per article or something like that. But thankfully, more and more journals are moving to this open access model. And we actually read loads of articles from places like, uh, well, all of the journals of the British Ecological Society, for instance, they're all great. And more often than not, nowadays, the articles are free to download. So yeah, I really recommend checking out those and the Edinburgh Journal of Botany. 
So if you want to do your own research and if you want some pointers on where else we look for information, then we already have a blog on our website called Websites for Wildlife Gardeners and all the free resources that we use are linked to there. So well done to all the journals going open access and if you want to learn more yourself, head over to the blog on our website. And you can point out our mistakes or omissions. (laughs) mispronunciation you name it oh we'll come on to that later (laughs) (laughs) so now i think we're moving on to our interview part one with dr ian bedford ian bedford is the ex-head of entomology at the john innes center not ex because he was fired but because he retired (laughs) (laughs) um But now, I say he's retired, but he's actually an extremely busy speaker, giving talks all about wildlife gardening and insects to gardening clubs all around the UK. And we've actually known about him for quite a while as he's in demand as a guest on other podcasts, isn't he? We've heard him all over the place and also on radio. He's on BBC Radio Norfolk. I think that's right. I think that's right with Toby Buckland. That's Mm -hmm. right. So it was our great pleasure to interview him last month as we joined him talking about his garden over in sunny Norfolk. Hello, Ian Bedford, or Dr. Ian Bedford, I should say. Lovely to meet you. (laughs) Nice to meet you too. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. And uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoying my post-retirement life. Very nice. Well, I I feel like I've heard you a lot in my ears listening to various podcasts because you do seem to be a very, very busy man. But I thought it would be nice for our listeners just to have you say a bit about who you are, what you used to do when you were working and what is keeping you so busy in your retirement? Well, I I guess I'm a lifelong entomologist, if that sort of sums up uh, my life so far, which uh, has been dragging on for quite a few years now. But uh, (laughs) I was was born in in Sussex in Brighton and I uh, had a fascination with insects right from my earliest age. And I can remember the other days back in the sort of uh, mid to late 60s when um, school holidays used to be spent out uh, on the South Downs uh, on adventures. You know, we used to just go off on our bikes with our butterfly nets and uh, mum and dad used to say, make sure you're back in time for tea. Nobody seemed to worry in those days. Sounds magical. Yeah, so we'd go out and, and, and sort of, you know, search for... You know, various creatures, particularly the butterflies, which I had an interest in conserving rather than killing and collecting and pinning out. Then, you know, luckily my interest in the, the bug world sort of continued through and I was, I was able to pursue my education through biological sciences and ended up um, getting a job at the John Innes Centre in Norwich and um, was there for 42 years. And uh, I, during that time, I was able to take over the running of the entomology department Entomology, I, I, I guess you know, everybody who's listening in will, will, will know what entomology is, but just in case there's a, a couple who, who don't, it's the... Um... We, we never assume, we never assume on this podcast. We like to try and explain everything, so that's grand. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So but it's the, the study of uh, insects and their interactions with the environment and other organisms. Insects, as, as we know, have six legs, um, but entomology really sort of covers a, le- a lot more than just the insects it's it's more of sort of invertebratology <laughs> rather yeah, than yeah. entomology but uh but yeah so i i ran the entomology department uh at the john Innes, and we were involved in our own um research into different things that were going on but also supporting science right across the norwich research park and with other institutes around the uk and and, and internationally as well yeah so we were doing all the sort of hands-on work with, with insects we kept collections of um mainly sap-sucking bugs that were 
responsible for transmitting plant viruses around crops in the world and also spent a lot of time working down in southern Spain when the problem started there with uh, whitefly putting viruses into tomato crops and that had a knock-on effect where growers were um, were, were spraying a lot of pesticides at the time and um, you know worked with a big team of scientists to identify the causes and, and to find safer ways for crops to be grown which again the insect side of things it was incredibly useful because we were able to use insects that predated or parasitized the problematic insects to keep their numbers down and, and to reduce the instance of the virus. So, uh, yeah, so that really kept me busy. It, it was a dream job for me, really, because of my, my love for the invertebrate world. And, you know, to, to be able to have some control over the direction of the research I did was fantastic as well. And it was able to... I was able to sort of address, you know, real issues rather than things which you know, were perhaps hypothetical. And, uh, you know, I, I never really got into the blue sky type of science. It was, it was really sort of, you know, making sure that what I was doing was relevant to, yeah. um, you know, crops and, uh, and to, the, to the survival of, uh, of the insect world, which is so vital to the survival of the planet. I was going to say it must have been really hard for you to leave that job as it was such a dream job. But then, as I said, you're, you are a very busy man now. And I feel like you haven't really retired in the same sense that lots of people, you certainly not start taking up golf or anything. I don't think you've got time for anything like that. <laughs> I haven't got the physique for golf either. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment on things like that. Uh, you can see me on Zoom here, so you know. <laughs> it was just an absolutely great job, but the the, the, the the trouble I, I, I felt, well, um, I knew it was time to, to retire because um, uh, the, the way that science progresses became a lot more focused on genomics and DNA. And, and, and you know, for me, that's, that's not really the way that I perceive entomology as a science. I think it has to be, you know, the taxonomists, the people who understand the behavioural traits of uh, is people who can actually handle insects because you know over the years you meet so many people who um you know wanted to work in the team some of them had uh, it's almost like a gift to be able to set up an insect colony and to keep it as a successful colony with them continually breeding other people uh, they just look at the insects and they died and, and there was just no real wow. explanation as to what happened but some people just had that yeah. had that gift and without those types of people it's very difficult to to work, you know, in sort of, you know, insect assays and, and, and the whole hands-on approach to entomology. I just got this image of you uh, asking your managers, before you became a manager, whether or not you could continue riding your bike and wielding your butterfly net. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gave up riding a bike a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but not the net, not the net. <laughs> well, well, funny enough, you know, we used to go out on field trips. We, we, we did a lot of work out in the... Uh, in the Canary Islands, when th- that virus spread out there, and um, we've got some amazing pictures of colleagues there with these sweep nets. And after you've been, you know, sweeping all the ground and whatever, you then sit on a rock and you put your head inside the net and you're with your little pooter, which is a tube that sucks up the insects. And you've got all things crawling up your nose and in your ears and <laughs> everything. But <laughs> I'm sure, you know, the people who used to drive past and see grown um, men and women with their heads in. Uh, <laughs> Wow. 
in glorified butterfly nets wondering what the hell was going on. <laughs> Certainly not a job that everyone would aspire to, I have to say. I mean, I, I personally would, but I can see why people might not want to do that. <laughs> no, but it's funny, but we, we do have this inherent fear, particularly in the sort of Western world, of of, of bugs, you know, and uh, I, I, I see that a lot with, you know, when I go around and, and give my talks now and uh, I try and explain that, you know, if you if you see a couple of aphids on a lettuce leaf on a on a salad that perhaps you buy from from a pub you know um why complain about it because so many people would take it back and want their money back to me seeing a lettuce leaf without aphids on i'd question what else was on that leaf that you couldn't see because that's very good point yeah having been involved in you know see monitoring field crops and seeing what's going on i see an awful lot or have seen over the years an awful lot of um, pesticide use yeah on most types of crops yeah i always say that you know times i've been out in in a a field grown lettuce crop and um somebody says quick get back come back in the car because you could hear a helicopter coming and then that helicopter comes in and just sprays all the the crop above you you know that so that's what it used to be like in in the old days and um in some ways it's great that we're, we're now changing the way that we do try and control the plant pests, but it's making life a lot difficult for the the commercial growers because we we as you know consumers demand perfect produce. Unfortunately, Indeed. I wish people could see our kitchen. Sometimes we, uh, I think, we've got as much wildlife inside it as we do outside it from things that we've bought in and are about to eat. But no, I think you're right. I think people. It's, it's a sanitized view of the world, isn't it? And it's it's becoming or has become very prevalent. And I, I also find that quite scary for obvious reasons. But in terms of translating what you did when you were a research scientist, what have you been doing since then? Because I know it's been quite difficult to to pin, in fact, both of us down, but you in particular, because I know how busy you are. And yeah, I feel like what you're doing now is as important in a way, isn't it? As, as, as it was when you were, you know, running your, running your team as a scientist, do you want to just let people know what's keeping you busy? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I hope that's the case. Cause um, I mean, during my time at John Ennis, I was approached by many different companies that, that wanted advice and whatever. And obviously it's difficult to do when you're working as a, as a government scientist, but um as now that I've left, I am able to undertake a, oh, a certain amount of advisory work, you know, consultancy, which I don't really like the name of the word, <laughs> but um, I, I do help companies that are trying to develop environmentally friendly alternatives to um, products and perhaps strategies that have been used to control problems in in, in crops and um there's so many interesting things out there, and I, I and I'm happy to do that. Um, so long as I have confidence in the products that are being developed, and that I feel that you know I've uh, I, I'm not endorsing them, but I'm able to showcase these as alternatives to people who are looking to ways um, to change the way they they garden. Because at the end of the day, you know we've got 23 million gardens in the UK. That's a, a, a bigger landmass than all of our nature reserves put together, and I, you know, I'm not saying everybody's garden is going to be suitable for um, you know helping the wildlife and that, but a vast majority of them are. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if people have the 
options to use environmentally safer ways of of managing things. And it's not just managing the pests; it's how you sort of clean your paths or how you get rid of the weeds or the whole concept of of, of home garden house management has to be done in a way which doesn't keep putting unnatural chemicals back into the environment. And I'm able to sort of, you know, do that by working with these these companies because their products offer that alternative, but also to go out and talk to garden clubs, horticultural societies. I go, I go to the uh, national gar, uh, garden shows, flower shows, and, and hold plant pest clinics and, and talk to people about the options because I think we can make a huge change. We mm. really can. And that's my mission really now to, to just try and get that message across and to, but not just to sort of do what, you know, so many other people do, which is, oh, just go out and plant plants for pollinators. You know, that, that's the way we're going to save the planet. Well, I, I'm trying to offer some real practical advice here because I'm working with those companies and can, can tell you what, what could be used as an alternative. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we probably have explained. We are also professional gardeners. So we work for about 35 different families and people around Nottingham. And yeah, we've really learned, if, if you like, sort of the hard way, what products work and what products don't. So particularly with the compost, it's taken a lot of trial and error. So it's nice to be able to pass on that information to other people. Well, we've got some questions for you, obviously. And what we've done is try to sort of, it's important, I think, to talk about some of the negative things with around insects in terms of their declines and whatever. So we've, we've tried to talk about the, or ask you questions about the negative things first, and then we'll move on to the more positive stuff that we can end on a more positive note. So the first question is, given the latest IPCC report, and that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it seems that we're likely to have about 1.5 degrees of warming. What impact will that have on our insect and soil life um, populations? Mm. Uh, that, that, that is uh, quite a worrying um, aspect. And I think, I mean, we all the evidence is there to show that you know, the climate is warming and we're seeing those consequences of it on some of our temperate species that we have in the UK already. Um, I particularly notice it with the butterflies. Now, I've always viewed the butterflies as as being a bit like the the canaries that we use down the coal mines. You know, they're an early warning system to things that are going wrong. And, you know, um, butterflies that you don't see down in the warmer parts of Europe such as you know the, the the green vein whites and the small tortoiseshells, they they prefer a more um, a temperate climate. Well, as soon as we have these summer heat waves, those butterflies suffer tremendously. And in fact, you know, it was two years ago, three years ago, we had some some really sort of um, uh, you know severe um, heat waves in, in the summer, and, and almost overnight the small tortoiseshells just vanished from the garden. I never saw them back again, um, you know, for the rest of that year. But we're seeing other species that y- you tend to see a lot in the warmer parts of Europe. I mean, uh, taking the silver-washed fritillaries, for example. I mean, when I was down in Italy, there were clouds of those everywhere you went. Well, we had them in the UK, but not in vast numbers. But over recent years, their numbers are just going you know, crazy. I mean, I've got mm-hmm. a little wood here. Yeah, about sort of five miles away. And it's probably the most common butterfly you see in the summer now. Wow. So, yeah. And we're seeing the migrant species. It's just, you know, the, the, well, the moth, the um, hummingbird hawk moth. 
and the death said hawk moths, things which are, ca- are coming in from Europe and seem to be staying here a lot longer. Yeah. And I, I do think the Lepidopterans are, are a great indication that, you know, we, we, we're we having change going on at the moment and we need to be aware of that and we need to be, you know, monitoring this and reacting to it. Uh, same with damselflies. We've got, uh, I think there's four damselflies that we've basically lost now, but one species um, that's coming from Europe that's doing remarkably well and almost like filling in the gap where we've lost the the native species. So it's, it's quite a sort of dynamic situation. Things are going to change, but um, at just at what point is going to affect some of the real critical species? I mean, our, our, our deciduous trees, for example, and, you know, the, 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 the native wildflowers, you know, that, that's the thing I think we need to be very much aware of. And also the soil microbiome, you know, what happens to that when the temperatures are above what, you know, the, the normal is for a temperate climate. Sorry, do you think there are enough um, naturalists to actually even monitor these huge changes that we're seeing at the moment? I don't. I, I really don't think that there are enough. I mean, it's not a, a profession that uh, you can go out and, you know, <laughs> get a decent salary from. I mean, there's a lot of amateurs that are working in this field. But, you know, the, the, the science side of things has become a lot more down the molecular route. And I think we need people who are out there, you know, the real field scientists, We've got, you know, a lot, lot of ecologists that work through, you know, universities, and we've got some great people here at the University of East Anglia. But, you know, we, we need an awful lot more. We need people to be, you know, working together and planning the future together, and and giving, you know, providing the uh, all of the information that, um, that 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 builds the whole picture of what's happening, not just little bits. And, you know, just going back to all this advice of, you know, protecting the pollinators in the garden. Yes, we need to have gardens as stopping off points for the pollinators because they're vital for the um, uh, you know, pollinating wildflowers and, and our crops as well. But in a garden situation, they're not the most important group of insects. It's no. all the, you know, it's, it's the fungi, the bacteria in the soil. It's all the, the, uh, the life that lives in the soil that's breaking down the organic matter. It's making sure you start building up those little food chains so that the herbivorous bugs that are feeding on your plants, the ones that we unfortunately call pests, and manage yes. naturally but they're the food of the other creatures and you can get to a certain point in a garden um in building a food chain before you have to you have to sort of take some sort of um remedial action because you can't get to those apex predators in a garden situation so that's why i think you know we should be focusing on the protected sort of areas the 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 nature reserves the the rewilding projects that are going on on old farmland and that and using our gardens as like stepping stones for wildlife to move between these so that you get the gene flow that that is necessary to keep healthy populations because otherwise they remain in isolation in these protected zones that uh, but we can't convert our gardens i don't think into long-term places where the wildlife will um, settle down and breed and maintain itself for the future it, it just won't happen gardens are too dynamic a place and you know we know what happens you know people move out they've spent their lifetime creating a fantastic wildlife uh, friendly place and the next person comes in and, and gravels over the whole garden and turns it into a car park you know and, and we see that so many times on the other side um we i was recently uh had an inquiry for through our business 
of someone that wanted to do the opposite. And I just gave a little dance when she said that she wanted to convert her front drive in, back into a garden. But you are right. I feel like the for, certainly from what we see day to day, there is much more a tendency towards uh, yeah, graveling or concreting or astroturfing, dare I say it. But for me, it, it feels all the more important to yeah just keep shouting about these problems to as many people as possible in the way that you are as well <laughs> well the, the, the encouraging thing is that uh, you know, i haven't come across anybody who doesn't embrace the uh the advice on 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 attracting wildlife or making a garden and a friendly zone for wildlife to move through everybody seems to be wanting to help the environment but they're just not given enough information in in how to do that and it is you know, quite a simple thing just to, to make sure that garden is safe and that it fits in with the surrounding area. We always think that having um, having an inquisitive mind, because what I was going to say is something that we've certainly been on a journey of discovery within gardening. We've been doing it for a number of years, but in terms of understanding the, the sheer biodiversity of what goes on out there, I mean, we're probably at the tip of the iceberg after a few years of just acknowledging it. And I think, I think it's important to to let people know they don't necessarily have to understand or be able, able to identify all 9,000 wasp species to be able to help them, if that makes sense. It's it's more about taking like a more holistic view of your garden and just not not killing things when you don't know what they are. That's probably the most important thing. And just to let things be, don't you think? Absolutely. That, that really is it. It's understanding the layers. If you can imagine, you know, this pyramid, which is the, um, the food chains, knowing that right at the bottom of the soils, then right above that are the producers, which are your plants that, you know, need healthy soils to, to grow in. And then the layer above that are the herbivorous bugs, which are just vital for the next layers, which are the bugs that use those herbivorous bugs as, as, as food. And so on and so forth. And, and, and eventually you build up to, you know, the apex predators. But like I, I just, just said earlier that, you know, you, you can't get to that situation in gardens. I, I mean, I had a typical example here. I spent years building up my frog populations in the garden, you know, because it took a long, long time. And, and it was a case of backing off, you know, um, or just accepting that my roses were going to be covered in aphids and that then you'd get the ladybirds, you get the the, 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 the hoverfly larvae, you get, you know, the lacewings and all those things. Like that. And eventually you get to the point and it, everywhere I looked, there was frogs. You know, I, I, I've got little <laughs> pool ponds and I, 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 one of them's like got a, a sort of um, a, a, a centrepiece that's hollow and I lift that up and I could count anywhere between 10 and 20 frogs in the sun. I just crammed in there. We've got a lot of customers who aspire to that, by the way. So I feel like that deserves a congratulations. Yeah. But then well, one, one in particular used to go into the greenhouse at the bottom of the garden and sit on the uh, the tray when I was watering my tomatoes. And, uh, you know, he'd like to, he'd like to shower with the, <laughs> in the morning. And, <laughs> and then uh, my, my, my son came in one morning after he'd uh, been watering. He said, oh, Dad, I said, I've just seen your frog in the, uh, in the greenhouse. <laughs> he, was, he was in the mouth of a grass snake. Oh, <laughs> oh God. That's nature. <laughs> it is, but the grass snakes have moved in, and um, after that, I'd be, you know, I'd be sitting in the garden, um, and I'd hear a rustling in the in one of the flower beds, and then a frog would leap out. You'd never seen a frog leap so so high, and then a big grass snake would follow it and wiggle wow. right across the lawn trying to catch it. And I lost all my frogs over a season. Yeah. I, I I didn't see any frogs the next year, and 
this year I've only seen one. But the grass snakes have now gone. They've moved on because they've got no food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> forgive the pun, but it's, it's a bit like sort of you know, snakes and ladders, isn't it? But <laughs> with, with the garden wildlife. But it just shows that, you know, really there should have been some sort of intervention when the grass snakes moved in, you know, perhaps a, a way of, you know, moving them into areas where they weren't going to completely destroy the balance. You know, it's it's a difficult one. And, and, and you know, but that's where these big areas of, you know, uh, of, of nature reserves and rewilded areas are so good because they allow that whole, you know, food chain to establish mm-hmm. and the balance is there, you know. And I, I don't know whether you've ever seen the um, – the NEP estate in, in Sussex. We've got a, a huge plan to go. We've just not quite made it yet. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a 15 minute video. If you, if you just um, go onto their website and it's astonishing just to listen to what they've achieved in 20 years and how all this wildlife has just come back. And it just, you know, they use the phrase, just taking their hands off the wheel and just sitting back and letting nature do its stuff. That I think is so important. You know, to realize that that is how you do it. You don't have to, I think by trying to create habitats, you know, because we have all, all these schemes that are going on, you know, planting trees everywhere. Well, well, that's great, but is it going to create the, the right habitat for things to establish in and, and to build up that balance? And I think what's happened at the NEP estate shows us that it's going to be quite difficult. We do have to really let nature just sort of take control of things. There's a, an example I, I, I give here on the Norfolk Broads because we have the swallowtail butterfly. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it, it's it's the only place in, in in the UK that Britain's largest butterfly breeds. But we've got, what's it, 117 square miles of Norfolk Broads. But there's less than five square miles where the swallowtail butterfly breeds. And yeah. you think, well, why? Why isn't it moving? And I mean, I can go to two sites here, you know, and see the swallowtail butterflies in the in, in the summer, and then, you know, go for a walk about, you know, half a mile outside of that area. You don't see a single swallowtail, but you know, its food plants are there. What is it that we're missing? What is that unique part of the habitat that makes those butterflies stay in that area? Why are they so localized? Yeah, no, but I think these are the things we really do need to try and understand because. It's not as simple as it may seem in establishing habitats and allowing the, na- the, the, the species to come back in and to build up our biodiversity again. Thank you very much, Ian. And part two will be in the next episode. But before we move on to the native plant of the week, we have a little botanical mystery to delve into. This mystery pertains to Daphne mezereum, also known as the mezereon, and it's one of two native Daphne species to the British Isles, the other being Daphne laureola, which is called the spurge laurel. Have you seen either in the wild? Just yes. quickly. You, have you? Yeah, I've seen the spurge laurel. Why didn't you point this out to me? Were you we weren't not there. together. Okay, fine. I'll let <laughs> and you we've off. also got it in a customer's garden where it wasn't planted. It definitely wasn't planted. Where's that? It's come. Well, I can't tell you the name on air. I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. But it's thanks. in the front garden of somebody who lives in a village beginning with R and whose name is D. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right by the drive. 
Yeah, there's oh, one there. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Carry <Daphne>, on. <laughs> thank you. Daphne Miserium has vibrant pink-purple flowers that bloom in late winter, early spring. It's a shrub. And these flowers smell heavenly. It is one of my favourite smelling shrubs ever. It's not planted enough, is it? Oh, no. No, it's no, no. fantastic. Yeah, you don't winter. often see it in the shop, sadly. But nicking an idea from a customer, if you want a watercolour splash of early colour, plant some of these shrubs, then underplant them with native primroses and some cyclamen coom, which is the spring flowering cyclamen. And the combination of all three flowering together in February and March is, is just to die for. And we've got some photos of that on our Facebook page, I think. I will um, find it. I'll dig them out. They're worth revisiting. Yeah, we can't take any credit for it because we didn't do it. But it's an idea that's lodged in my head. Anyway, given its early flowering, it's often included in plants for pollinators lists. And being a native plant, I naturally thought of using it as our native plant of the week for the podcast. Setting out to learn more, I headed over to the Oxford Herbaria's Plants 400 website and read an article on the species written by Professor Stephen Harris, who is the curator of the herbaria. One sentence immediately jumped out at me, and I quote, the tight clusters of nectarless Mezzerian flowers emerge directly from the leafless stems and form spectacular displays in the early spring when few other shrubs are in bloom. That's right, the flowers are nectarless. This piqued my interest, so I followed the references in this article. One paper led to another, and to another, and then to another, ending finally with a reference to a master's thesis conducted by a student in Sweden in 1991, which is not available to view online. Now, I personally wrote my master's thesis a few days before it was due on the train on the way to a holiday in Greece. <laughs> but I'm sure other master's students out there put a great deal more effort into their studies and have produced high quality research. But because I can't access that thesis, there are a lot of questions which are unresolved. For instance, do we know if the population the student studied was clonal, i.e., was it a number of specimens that were basically the same because they're from some horticultural variety? Or were they looking at a wild population? If it was a wild population, was it from one location or country or many? Was the data sampling taken over a number of years with different climatic conditions? Short answer, we don't know. Dun, dun, dun. And deepening the mystery, I read a paper from a Polish agricultural university in which Professor, and I'm going to murder this name, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Gonna, I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, Miroslawa... Chwil? God, I'm sorry. Not that they'll be listening. Anyway, they commented on the copious production of nectar by Daphne Mezzerium, but again, without any supporting data. So I would say this puts the idea that Daphne Mezzerium produces no nectar on pretty shaky foundations. So I contacted a few people in the know. I tried to contact the Polish professor but had no luck. I think probably my Google Translate email didn't come across very well. Um, secondly, though, I emailed Professor Harris, who wrote the article for Oxford Plants 400. He replied to say that he's never observed the production of nectar in the species himself. But, and I quote, maybe there is a variation in nectar production through the natural range of Daphne Mezzerium, or that production varies from year to year. Then I got in touch with previous guest Nick Chu, soon to be Dr. Chu, I'm sure, who's been sampling nectar from hundreds of plant species in the UK. Uh, he hadn't actually sampled Mezzerian, but he had found that both Daphne adora and Daphne bluer, which are two separate species often grown in, 
in gardens for winter flower. They did produce nectar. And as an aside, Nick also pointed out that sampling nectar from Daphne flowers generally was particularly tricky. Can you remember why? Was it just fiddly? Fiddly. D- fiddly was the her. exact word he used, okay. actually. Yeah. Very scientific term. Exactly. <laughs> and finally, in the original article, um, another reference was made to botanist A.H. Church, which was it's a reference from 1908. Uh, and this botanist um, sort of described the structure of these Daphne flowers. And he found an organ in the flower which he attributed as a nectary. And the nectary is the organ that produces nectar. Even though they didn't actually specifically mention nectar production. So where does that leave us? Well, as wildlife gardeners, should we be planting a shrub that might be encouraging insects to expend energy to travel to the plant, believing that there's a nectar reward, only to discover that they were tricked and there's no nectar at all? You know, imagine you're a... A bumblebee queen just woken up in the spring had nothing to eat for months and you you could travel a mile following a scent trail you get to the plant and there's no reward for you no sugar at I all i think you'd be very sad actually you'd be or ill ill upset could, yep swearing at the plant right <laughs> so you know is that the sort of plant that we want to be putting into our gardens or should we be skeptical of the nectarless claim which is based on unknown data in a non-peer-reviewed article Well, for now, as it has such an incredible scent, I'd still recommend it for a wildlife garden because even if it's just for our own pleasure, it's just a nice plant to have. But this is a mystery that could be solved with your help. So listen up. If you know your plants and are aware of a wild population of Daphne mesereum and can pinpoint where it grows, please do get in touch and tell us where you know it's found. And if you're a researcher that knows how to sample flowers for nectar and would like to help us solve this mystery, please get in touch too. Then if we are able, we might be able to get out to a few sites together, take some samples and do some real science on the podcast. If no nectar's found, then we can support the nectarless theory. Or if nectar is found, then maybe together on the podcast, we'll have made a real scientific discovery. So to help us with this project, get in touch by emailing us at thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com or message us on twitter.com forward slash thewildgdn or on facebook.com forward slash thewildlifegardenpodcast. We're now moving on to our regular feature of the show, the native plant of the week. But first, Ben has an apology. Or a correction. A correction and an apology to, to everybody. Ireland. <laughs> from Ireland, Northern Ireland. Everybody's been anywhere near Ireland. You might recall in the previous episode, we were talking about the blackthorn. And a particular use of the blackthorn is to make something I called a shilly lag. <laughs> <laughs> and the sure way to get more people writing into the podcast is to pronounce something horrendously, <laughs> as I have realised. Because I cannot tell you yeah, the number of people who have said their correct pronunciation is shillelagh. shillelagh. Or shillelagh. <laughs> or depending shillelagh. on where you're from. Yeah, we actually were sent uh, a video by your uncle, actually. Yep. With uh, the various different uh, ways it's pronounced around Ireland. Yeah, so there you are. So I'll actually put a link to that pronunciation video in the show notes (laughs) (laughs) sorry it's too easy yeah anyway so sorry shillelagh shillelagh and and next week i look forward to your uh, apology to all of poland (laughs) (laughs) yeah anyway right let's go on to the crab apple (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, this week we are talking about something that looks brilliant right now, and that is the Malus Sylvestris. And this is the crab apple. And the name can be broken down into two parts. So we've got Malus, and this comes from the Greek melon, which confusingly means apple. <laughs> Just to confuse everyone. I don't get that. So the Greek for apple is melon, and what? that's where we get malice from. That's the root of it. You mean the Greek word melon? Yes. That's, an, that's a word apple. in Greek? Yes. Right. And it means apple, and we've changed it to malice somehow. <laughs> well, that's confusing. It is quite confusing. Well, what do they call a melon? I knew you were going to ask this, so I have pre-prepared an answer. <laughs> yeah. I had to look it up, obviously. But... The Greek for melon is melopepo, which is a combination of melon, which means apple, remember, and pepon, which means a gourd, which is, of course, like the family that the melon is in. So they've combined them. But anyway, back to malice, which is just apple, straight up apple. And sylvestris, which means of woods or of growing wild. Yeah, like anthriscus sylvestris as well. We've got loads of sylvestris, I think, and more will come up, I'm sure. In terms of what it looks like, it's a wonderful, wonderful tree and it can reach about 10 metres in height, usually, and from a distance has a roughly rounded and quite dense canopy. And in spring, and that's about April and May, the tree is completely smothered with clusters of pale pink blossom. And these clusters comprise of individual flowers, which are about three to four centimetres across, and they enclose yellow stamens holding the pollen in the centre. It's native to Europe, including where we are, Great Britain, to Scandinavia, north and central Russia, and down to Turkey. And it's also been introduced to South Argentina and Queensland, Australia. In the UK, it's scattered across our landscape and it's often seen as single trees and you're probably most likely to find it in old hedgerows, in scrub and ancient woodland, especially in gaps because it actually prefers quite a lot of sunlight and also on margins and on unusually wet or dry areas. Now, those of you who've seen lots of apples in your local rural area, beware because descendants of the cultivated apple malus domestica have a tendency to also spring up wherever humans have had the opportunity to chuck an old apple core away somewhere or a bird has pooped along main roads and in hedgerows and because of this sometimes it's quite hard to distinguish a true crab from these chance taking incomers which are collectively known as the wilding oh that's nice i love that i absolutely love that the wilding apples. Yeah, it's beautiful. Lovely. Because, yeah, because you often get apples of all sorts of sizes along motorways, don't you? Motorways, train lines as well when you're on a train, take yeah. a look out the window, particularly at this time of year because the apples are on the trees and they actually do. You're look, right, that's when you notice them. It is, and they, they're beautiful. They look like they're decorated. Yeah. And there are quite a few ways to identify a genuine Malus sylvestris, though. So one is the fact that the crab apple often has spiny twigs. And also smaller leaves, which are about three to five centimetres long. And both the leaves and the leaf stalks of the crab apple are not at all hairy when they're mature. That's right. I was trying to remember because when I which went out around? for that walk with the Botanical Society, they were looking at some apples, which are probably wilding apples, like you explained. Okay, and yeah. they were talking about, they were pointing out something which was telling them it's not the true crab apple right. and I'd forgotten what it is and it's that. So yeah, it's the hair. hairy leaves. That's what they were looking for. And it's not true hair, it's like fuzziness. You know, if you if you rub the back of an apple leaf in your garden, if yeah. you've got a cultivated apple, then you're quite, they're quite rough to touch and yeah. that's what they're referring yeah, to. Yeah, so cr- true crab apple 
don't have that completely smooth exactly yeah that's a really quite easy way to tell well also cultivated apples tend to have much bigger leaves although obviously this varies and so if you've got a tree that that has hairy leaves and they're quite large up to 15 centimeters then you've probably got yourself a a descendant of a cultivated apple rather than a true crab Mm, nice and another way to distinguish them are the fruit with cultivated apple descendants tending to have larger fruits than the small 20 to 30 millimeter fruits of the crab however This is not always the case, making it sometimes difficult to use fruit alone as a diagnostic. And what makes it harder is that these wildings often hybridise with true crabs, resulting in something in between. But all in all, the genuine crab apple is a magnificent, gnarly barked and relatively rare sight, with some trees living to around 100 years. That's good going for an apple. Pretty good going. Yeah, nice. While they're more scarce now, probably because of the sad removal of a lot of our hedgerows, they actually used to be really common features of Anglo-Saxon and Welsh boundaries in particular. And it's really sad that they're not as available now and that they're quite a rare thing because there are lots and lots of different uses of them. And while the fruits are pretty small, hard and sour... Anyone out there who likes foraging knows they are great for making lots of things. Now, the most obvious is probably crab apple jelly, which you get this beautiful, translucent, almost jewel-like jelly from the crabs. They're really high in pectin, so they're really easy to make jelly from. Or you can pickle them, or sometimes they're used as a flavouring when you're making your boozy uh, winter punch. And they can also be roasted and eaten with meat as well, if you're that way inclined. Putting them in a winter punch is a really old thing. Mm. We were just at a friend's house reading, a, she's got a recipe book of like 17th century brewing. And uh, one of the recipes was to boil up wine and to put crab apples, roasted nice. crab apples in it as a, as a winter thing. Ooh. Yeah, and you put spices in with it as well, like cinnamon and, and stuff. And you, the, the roasted crab apples, because they, they become even more flavourful if you roast them slowly, just makes it all up and it makes a nice winter drink. Do you think this will save my homebrew? No, nothing can save your homebrew. <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> Um, also, the crab apple can sprout from the base when it's been cut. So it has been found to have been used in coppice. And in Britain, coppice stools over five metres in girth have been recorded. That's that, massive. That is a huge apple. Now it's time to move on to our favourite part of Native Plant of the Week, and that is the sexual antics of the crab apple. Malus sylvestris, like all apples, needs another malus, or apple, to cross-pollinate it. And in fact, quite often, crab apples, because they've got really long flowering periods and a huge abundance of flowers, are often planted in orchards as the pollinating partner for all of our cultivated apple varieties. We often recommend it to people who are planting an orchard, don't we? Absolutely. And the flowers are bisexual or hermaphrodite, which means, as we said before, containing both male and female sexual parts. However, the pollen of a particular tree is genetically incapable of successfully pollinating a flower on the same tree. It just rejects the pollen and and just won't pollinate. So you're not going to get any fruit. I also read that there might be a bit of protandry going on as well. And in plants, we've talked about this before, this is where the male sexual parts ripen or they're available before the female sexual parts so in the crab apple the female sexual part and that's the style starts quite a lot shorter 
when the flower is young and therefore it's more hidden or inaccessible. But then as that flower ages, that style lengthens and becomes more protruding. And this just further ensures that the pollen of a flower isn't essentially wasted on the same flower by a passing insect. In terms of which critters do the pollination, this is another plant which we don't have a simple list of pollinators. And if you listen to the last episode, we no longer put that down to us not finding the information. It's just not been formally put together. But what we do know is that the plant sits in the Rosaceae family and shares the distinctive bloom shape of its Rosaceae cousins. And typically, this means that flowers are flat or shallowly cupped. They're open with flower parts in multiples of five or four. And the pollen and nectar of the flowers are therefore really easily accessed by pollinating insects and visitors. Yeah, if you have a look at the flowers of a crab apple, and then you have a look at the flowers of a wild rose, so yep. something like a dog rose you'll start to see the the sort of quite close resemblance. And the bramble. They, in fact, they look almost identical. Yeah, true. Um, another feature of Rosaceae, actually, which I learned from Jeff Olerton's book, is that they have a, a typically very quick re- nectar recharge time. So if a pollinating insect comes and takes the nectar from a flower, that flower can recharge its nectar source pretty rapidly compared to maybe another plant in a different family, which I thought was quite interesting. They're just really good for pollinators. This particular feature is a massive hit with the bees, particularly as it's flowering in April and May. So things are really just starting to wake up and need that food source. But in terms of how often successful pollination actually occurs, there's a huge variability between different bee species. And again, I mentioned this in last week's book review. In the case of the malice, the red mason bee comes out as a particularly effective pollinator. And I've actually read that one can do the work effectively of around 80 honeybees. I don't have a a source for that, but I have read similar things that they are just much, much better pollinators, especially than the honeybees. And this is because the red mason bee collects pollen on its hairy undersides, on its abdomen, on what is known as a pollen brush, rather than its legs like other species. And the pollen is therefore pretty easily brushed off onto the next flower that it visits, because you can imagine just it bumbling along, just covered in pollen all over it. And all it has to do is sit on a flower for it to effectively pollinate that flower. As well as giving something to the pollinators, if you're looking to plant food plants in your garden, you can't really go much wrong with a crab apple. And in fact, we actually chose it as one of our top five plants for wildlife in for any garden, didn't we, on the Bidder Tits podcast with Jack Perks. Yeah, that's right. It's just great all through the year. Flower early, leaves for the, the herbivores to eat, and then fruits later in the and year. And it looks great. They're yeah. just so pretty. Um, and this is just because the list of what eats it is a long one. I actually read that there are about, well, over 200 species that use it as a food plant. That's the leaf. That's the leaf. Yeah. And, and also the bark as well. Oh, yeah, good yeah, point. Some burrowing beetles and whatnot. Now, just to go back to a favourite subject of mine, moths, including both macro and micro moth species, do top the list in terms of sheer abundance. And they make up about 130 species of those 200. Now, I promise, absolutely promise not to delve into all of them. But the list includes the wonderfully fluffy white ermine moth. You really have to look that one up. And also the figure of eight. And the figure of eight is actually a late season flyer, which you listeners, particularly in England and Wales, less so in Scotland and Ireland, might have seen recently as late as November. I've never seen one. 
Nope, I wouldn't know what that one actually looks like. I've not seen a photo of that one before. It just has the number eight printed Oh, really? On it. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are great. Like yeah. the silver Y, yeah. it's just got a Y on it. I know. Well, they're really wonderful names for lots of reasons. There are also 12 species of ticks and mites, and that's the order known as Akari, which we mentioned in a previous episode. And as well as all of that lot, there are a whole host of beetles, and that's the Coleoptera, including the very beautiful black-clouded longhorn beetle, or Laopus nebulosus. What a lovely name. It's a wonderful name, but also it's really beautiful. It has these long antennae, but unlike other longhorn beetles that I've seen, where they're sort of pointing forwards, they're swept back. It's just really pretty. Mm. It's not a very big one. It's about one centimetre. But if you're ever out under your crab apple, do look out for them because they're quite widespread. Longhorn beetles just are just so cool. Yeah, they're always a good thing to find when you're out and about. Of course, there's also the fruits to talk about. And when they're ripe, they're a hugely valuable source of food for birds, particularly the blackbird and also our other visiting thrushes like the red wing and field fair. They, they will take uh, crab apples in your garden. And as the winter progresses, you might find them coming into your garden as well, looking for that food source. But also fallen fruits will be taken by small mammals like wood mice and also voles. So they're just really great for food. So how do you grow it in your garden? It's another tough plant and it will cope with sand, it'll cope with chalk, loam or clay soil and it also doesn't mind what pH you have as well and it can cope with exposure so if you have a very windy and sunny spot it'll be just fine. Pretty much all it doesn't enjoy is full shade but you could probably get away with a partially shaded spot because they say they're quite tough. To get hold of a Malus sylvestris, you have quite a few options. If you're lucky enough to know of one in the wild, why not try growing one from seed? And to do that, you simply collect some ripe fruit and extract the seed and sow it fairly shallowly in seed compost in autumn. So it might be a bit late now, possibly. Um, worth trying, though. It's not going to cost you anything. Yeah, give it a go. Yeah, and what we mean by seed is simply the apple the pip, pip in the middle. Yeah, very simple. Alternatively, if you're feeling really technical, you could try chip budding in late summer. And this involves taking a bud from an existing tree and grafting it onto the rootstock of another apple. Or you could graft the stem in midwinter. But we'll put links to both those methods in the show notes for any of you budding horticulturalists out there. For all of you who have some money burning a hole in your pocket and who want a tree right now or yesterday, of course, you can just go out and buy one. And why not also get one for a friend or family member for Christmas while you're at it? Just please, 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 whoever you're buying one for, make sure that what you buy is UK grown. If it doesn't explicitly say whether a plant is grown here on a website, then just ask the nursery that you're buying from before you purchase. Yeah, just the fact that it's a nursery based in the UK, they are so sneaky, some of them. <laughs> it has to say grown. the UK grown plant. Yeah. It has to say those words specifically. Yeah, It can't just say, we're a proud UK nursery, because that means they could just be importing them. And they exactly. lie a lot. <laughs> yeah, and as we said before, this just stops the risk of bringing in new pests and diseases into this country on plants, which happens all the time, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, on that, I just quickly want to mention a shout out for another podcast. That's the Into the Wild podcast with Ryan Dalton. And he recently had the head of the Plant Health Agency come on as a guest and it's really worth a listen. I still haven't listened to that one. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I will listen. 
If you're going down the tree buying route, then at this time of year, you can buy bare root for immediate planting, as long as the ground isn't completely waterlogged or frozen. But also plenty of nurseries sell them as potted plants as well, which you can plant at any time, as long as you keep them watered. Yeah, bare root are cheaper though. They do tend to be cheaper and you do tend to get more variety available if people haven't already done their Christmas shopping. As well as the wild form, you can also take your pick of cultivars. But the disclaimer here is that the parents of these are often a mixture of Malus sylvestris and also of the wild apples which grow in other parts of Europe, Asia and North America. However, they do still have very, very similar benefits to wildlife. And I thought I'd just give you a quick rundown of my top three because there's quite a few and it's definitely worth going and having a look. Go for it. In at number one, Malus red sentinel. And this has small cherry-sized red fruits, which birds absolutely love through the winter. And also has the bonus of leaves which turn yellow in autumn. So the combination of those two things really does stand out in a garden. Yeah, and it's really commonly available. It's one you'll see in lots of the nurseries if you just go out looking for a tree. Yeah, I was going to say all of these are actually. I've chosen ones that are generally available the second one is Malus Sunrival. We've put this into a garden before. Yep. And it's quite similar to the Red Sentinel, but it has a really beautiful weeping form. So if you want something a bit more unusual looking, then this is something that you could maybe consider. And the one that we planted was actually top grafted. Mm. So it's particularly good for a very, very small garden. And top grafting means you grow one type of apple on a clear stem up to what is it about only about a meter and a half tall meter tall something like that and then they actually cut that off and graft the new type on the top and it means the stem doesn't grow any taller so it stays at that height so yeah if you've got a really small spot or you know a pot or by a patio something like that then buying one of these top grafted plants means they're never going to outgrow their space yeah they're just really quite flexible plants in terms of what's available In at number three, there's also Malus Everest. And this is a really, really go-to crab apple. Lots of people have it. The fruit is slightly more orange coloured. It's still red, but it's got an orange tinge to it. But it has exceptionally large flowers in spring. So this is one really for decoration. I mean, the wildlife still loves it, but it's really beautiful. Plastered in flowers. Smothered in flower. You just, I don't even know how they fit so many flowers on. They're just amazing. Of those three, I will just point out that I purposefully picked the varieties with red fruit because, as we've said before on previous podcasts, birds do tend to prefer them. I think it's just within their colour range. They recognise it as a ripe fruit, whereas some of the yellow and um, orangey fruits that you can also get with various crab apple varieties, the birds just don't notice them as much. So in terms of wildlife, go go red if you can. And, and they do look amazing as well. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I don't know what our listeners, maybe you've had a different experience with this, but there's a, quite a, a, a pale yellow one called Butterball mm. and the fruits tend not to be picked because no. I think the birds are thinking that they're fairly unripe fruit and that's good for the gardener in terms of what the look of it at? because yep. it, it, they, the fruits stay on the tree for a long time um, but not so much good for wildlife but yeah I'd be interested to hear if you've had a, a similar experience to that. Yeah I think birds do tend to leave them until the, the very bitter end if you like if we have a really long winter then that's when they might go for those fruits but in the beginning they'll, they'll tend to prefer the red ones. One final point I wanted to make with any tree it's just really important to check the eventual size of that tree and you can as ben said choose different rootstocks which can dictate the eventual size of the tree but just make sure you know what you're buying and what space it's going into so you're not always having to hack at it and make it look a complete mess (laughs) 
So that pretty much wraps up this episode. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you can get in touch with your questions for our live Q&A on YouTube, that would be great. I think we've had only two questions. Yeah, two. I think it's just because we've taught them everything they need to know. <laughs> That's the problem. No, really. We, well, first of all, we love hearing from you. But secondly, yeah, get those questions in because... I think we're going to get to about five and then we'll do a live Q&A on YouTube and answer them for everyone. Yep, coming up in the next episode, we've got the second half of the interview with Dr. Ian Bedford and we're going to be reading out some of the latest reviews that you've given us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and elsewhere. So if you want to drop us a review and send us a couple of words, then that would be great and we might read out your review in the next episode. So all there is left to say is keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Bye.